Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. We are wholly and completely dependent on your, your word, wholly completely dependent on your spirit to teach us your word. And so we trust in you now in this time that you'll do a work that only you can do, that our confidence will rest in you alone, that no other factor outside of ourselves or even within ourselves will prevent you from doing the thing that you plan and intend to do by your sovereign will through the work and the power of your word. So may Jesus be exalted, not only in this place, but in our hearts and in our minds. And may the gospel be clarified for us. And may the security that we find in Jesus provide us with confidence to live our lives in a way that brings you the most honor and glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we touched on <clears throat> a part of 1 Timothy 4.1, and we laid a foundation of the doctrine of eternal security, because in 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul is dealing with apostasy, okay? We talked very briefly last week about what apostasy is, because we ventured from 1 Timothy 4.1 and his teaching on apostasy, and we went over to other texts, to uh, John 6 and John 10 primarily, to see what Jesus has to say about eternal security, or what we call perseverance of the saints. And so, the foundation of our eternal security, or I'm sorry, the foundation of apostasy is eternal security, which is why we discovered that last week before we dove into what apostasy really is just so that we could understand wholly and completely that the teaching of apostasy that takes place here in the text is not, and not just here, but anywhere in Scripture when it's dealing with apostasy, that these apostates were never saved. That is elemental to this teaching on apostasy. And because that's important, we had to understand the importance of eternal security or perseverance of the saints. So today we'll examine what that apostasy is, and we'll look at and, and how it looks as we venture into Jesus' teaching in a parable in Luke. Now there's a lot more to be said about apostasy than what we'll discover today, um, such as Hebrews 6, which gives us a more detailed explanation for what an apostate experiences. Um, we won't be getting to Hebrews 6 today, sadly. It's a very helpful text, um, but I will... I will touch on it just for a moment, but I'm going to, we're just not going to get into it, and I wanted to, and that was my plan to, but as I worked on this sermon, I realized we're going to stick with uh, Jesus' teaching in Luke. Um, so I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe this Wednesday? I don't know. I'm not sure yet, because we have a transition time in our family discipleship. We just finished 1 John. We don't, you know, we could start 2 John this week, or we could do Hebrews 6. And just take a week in Hebrews 6, and then we'll go to 2 John next week or something like that. So you guys can tell me what you think about that later, and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. Okay. Um, I also, one of the reasons I don't want to get into Hebrews 6 like next week uh, is because I don't want to over-teach this and get lost in the weeds and we lose the context of 1 Timothy 4 and we lose sight of what Paul is teaching Timothy in this text. So because of that... Um, we're just going to veer away from that. Um, so with all that said, let's look at 1 Timothy 4.1. And Paul writes, 
Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. As we dig into apostasy in Scripture, it's important to have this text secured in the back of your mind as it reveals the reason that apostates stray from the truth. They are being manipulated and tricked and deceived by, as Paul says, demons and deceitful spirits. And as we discussed last week, their departure from the faith does not mean they lost their salvation, but that they are false converts, believing they are saved, but do not endure with the gospel. They were never saved, regardless of how long they play the part of the believer when they leave They reveal that they were never truly a part of the church. They were never truly saved. 1 John 2.19 talks about this very thing and saying, John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain might become plain that they all are not of us. Now notice that John says they were not of us. That's past tense, meaning that they leave the gospel. They that leave the gospel were never changed by the gospel because Jesus promises eternal life to those who are truly changed by the gospel. And these people don't endure to eternal life. Because they, they prove that they were never of us by going out from us. Those are apostates. And as First John calls them, he calls them antichrists. Not the antichrist, but as John describes it, they're like precursors to the antichrist. That they are what we would call maybe like little antichrists. Like little versions of what the antichrist will be. Small little portions of evil that will be... the. We'll see total accumulation of those evils in the Antichrist himself. And that's why they get that label. So, just for clarity, let's get these terms right. A a false convert isn't labeled or recognized as a false convert until they abandon Christ. Right? And once they do, they are then known as an apostate. Before they abandon Christ, they and we all believe... They're true believers. They act like a believer. They look like a believer. They talk like a believer. They do the things that believers do. They say the things that believers say. They confess the confessions that believers confess. And they look like and act like believers. But there's a difference. And we'll see what that difference is in Luke. But I say this, that that it's hard to spot them. Because I do not want you to get discouraged if you get tricked by a false convert thinking that you should have noticed. You ever happened like, oh, I should have known. I should have saw the writing on the wall. I should have saw it in their fruit. Scripture tells me that I'll know them by their fruit. Why did I not see that they didn't have fruit, that their fruit was fake? And we can get discouraged by that. And I want to encourage you not to think that way because even the apostle Paul was tricked. And we see this in Philippians 3, 17 through 19. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So that's an encouragement for the church. Imitate them, imitate Christ, imitate Christ as, or imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. And then he gives us a reason why we need to keep our eyes focused on imitating those who give us a good example. He says, For many 
of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. We often don't recognize a false convert is false until they leave the faith and reveal that they are an apostate. And so, what is it that turns a false convert into an apostate? Because we don't necessarily know they're a false convert until they are... I guess, officially or technically recognized as an apostate. We don't always, sometimes we can notice if a false convert is among us. Uh, It's not that common to notice it. There might be some signs that reveal it. But you're never really sure until that person becomes what we would say is an apostate. When they abandon Christ and leave the church and deny the essentials of the gospel and confess that they are not saved and admit that they are not saved. What is it that turns that false convert into an apostle? What makes someone who thinks they're saved finally leave the faith? Well, ultimately, it's their lack of faith. And when I say lack of faith, I don't mean they have a little faith and they need to have a little more. I'm saying they have zero faith in Christ because there is no degree of faith in regenerative faith. Okay, The faith that saves you is a full and complete uh, portion of faith that is required to believe. Then, in your sanctification, your faith slash trust slash belief slash obedience to God grows in your sanctifying process. But for those who don't have Christ, there's zero faith in Christ. But as is human nature, they deceive themselves into believing that they believe. And that's not a difficult concept to understand. I... I see this in a lot of doctrines. I see this in a lot of situations and scenarios in which uh, there are churches that encourage what I would say is maybe uh, unbiblical behavior or practices. And it's very easy for humans to, in their human manufacturing of thoughts and concepts and doctrines and, and beliefs, to convince themselves of things that aren't true. And then to act out those things that aren't true with a conviction that they are true and that they are Real. I'll give you an example, a real-life example, the spiritual gift of tongues. Okay? I have seen, personally, the gift of tongues that is a biblical spiritual gift misused and abused so many times in churches that I've literally been in. And the abuse of that gift often comes in convincing people that they're doing something that is not genuinely the fruit or product of the Holy Spirit, but they believe it is, though it is in and of themselves not genuine, or nor is it from the Spirit. I've seen that, and that's real. And those people believe it. It's so easy for us to convince ourselves that something that isn't real is real to us. It's very easy to lie to ourselves. Why? Because we have chosen to believe something. And when we choose to believe something, we, will not, we don't want to abandon our conviction or our belief that this thing is the way that it is. And so we formulate our life, even not unknowingly, around a lie and deceive ourselves and convince ourselves that this lie is a reality in our lives. And that happens for the false convert. So they deceive themselves into believing that they believe and their deception is not only their own, but it is also Satan's army of demons who manipulate them and deceive them to prevent them from actually believing the truth. Now, 
And that's according to what Paul just says here in verse 1, in 1 Timothy 4.1. But Jesus gives us a clear picture of apostasy. Paul just mentions apostasy, and in mentioning it, he is uh, assuming that the church has an understanding of Jesus' teaching on apostasy, and so he can just mention it, and by mentioning it, assume that the rest of the knowledge on apostasy taught by Christ himself is believed and understood by the church. So we're going to look at what Jesus taught, what the church would have known when Paul says, writes verse 1. So we get a clearer picture of apostasy in Luke 8, verses 4 through 15, as Jesus shares the parable of the sower and then explains the parable to his disciples. In Luke 8, he gives us this parable. He says, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rocks, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So we have four possibilities for how the gospel lands with people. The gospel is either trampled and eaten by the birds, it falls into the rocks, it falls into the thorns, or it falls into good soil. So those are four possibilities that Jesus gives for how the gospel lands with people. But Jesus' disciples didn't understand the parable, so they asked him what it meant in verse 9. And then in verse 10, Jesus says, in response to them saying, what do these parables mean? So the disciples even are like, the, you know, the purpose of a parable is that it, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? And so the meaning, the, the heavenly or spiritual meaning of the parable can sometimes get lost in the earthly explanation in the parable form. And that's the case here for everyone hearing Jesus preach on the parable of the sower. And the disciples themselves even don't know. So they're like, what, are you, what, are you, what does that mean? What, is, what are you talking about? And before Jesus explains the parable, he says this in verse 10. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables. Why are they in parables, Jesus? He gives the reason why. So that seeing they may not see, and hearing, they may not understand. What? So Jesus speaks in parables with the intention and the purpose of speaking in a parable so that the, some people will not understand, so that they will not believe. So Jesus wants them not to believe which totally flies in the face of what we're, talk, what we're told in the church. Now, granted, Jesus is God. Jesus is fulfilling the, the sovereign will of his Father. Jesus knows when to speak in a parable and when to speak plainly and who will and will not believe and who should and should not hear and understand. We do not have that kind of luxury. We are commanded to assume everybody can believe because as far as we know, everybody can believe and we should share the gospel with Everybody, So we don't get to practice what Christ practiced here. Instead, we are to share the gospel with everyone in hopes that they would be saved. But it, this does reveal what Jesus talked about when we read last week in John 6 and John 10, ultimately in John 6. Remember last week we discussed the important 
foundation of perseverance of the saints or the eternal security. Once you're saved, you're always saved. And, and the foundation of that doctrine of eternal security is the doctrine of election. And we looked at how uh, eternal security means nothing if God does not predestine salvation for his elect. So here again, Jesus reveals the foundation of apostasy, which is God's elective will for his people. So the foundation of an apostate is sovereignty in God's elective purposes. Jesus is telling us that he speaks in parables so that some people do not understand him and in not understanding them, not understanding the parable, they will fulfill God's sovereign will of not being saved. Now, we should not celebrate that. And there might, I would imagine that if you're not familiar with the doctrine of election, that that would create maybe some questions and certainly some curiosity. However, uh, there are tons of answers in scripture and one of those answers is we should not celebrate the death of people we should celebrate people believing in christ and coming to life and we should pursue those who are dying and going to hell because we love them and have a compassion for them and we should not celebrate their end and their destruction and their separation from god Instead, we should pursue them. But we should celebrate God enacting and playing out his sovereign will in the gospel. So again, we see the foundational doctrine of election playing a massively significant role in the salvation of some and the damnation of others to the glory of God in his perfectly sovereign will. So just as much as our eternal security stands on the foundation of God's election, so does the doctrine of apostasy stand on the teaching of of election. So the disciples, however, they are chosen because Jesus says to the disciples in the Gospel of John, you did not choose me, but I chose you. They are chosen. So Jesus explains the parable to them so that they do understand and they are saved. And he says in verse 11, now he's going to explain the parable, and he says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, or you could call that the gospel. Because the entire word of God is the gospel of God. The good news, gospel means good news, and the good news is that you get God, and God reveals that you get him through his word. And the whole point of the entire word leads us to Jesus. He is the center point and the most important person in the Bible and in human history and in reality. And the entire work of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is intended to reveal God so that you would know him. And if the good news is that we get to know God, then the entire Bible is the good news. So this whole word of God is the gospel from beginning to end. So Jesus says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And then he starts explaining the different seeds. The first one, he says, the ones along the path are those who have heard. So they heard the word of God. They heard the gospel preached. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. So these are not apostates. These are people who hear the gospel and reject it because Satan has, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And the result in terms of their experience or so the way that those unbelievers who reject the gospel, the way they experience Satan blinding them 
is, is as Romans 1.18 says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And what Romans 1.18 teaches us is that God has made himself known in all of creation and they, in their unrighteousness, suppress the truth of God. They reject the existence and reality of God and therefore they can't know Christ. And they can't know God because they can't know Christ. And so they reject. And that's how they experience what is ultimately Satan blinding them and Satan blinding them is ultimately God's sovereign election being played out. So Satan is God's instrument that he uses to manipulate unbelievers in order to prevent them from knowing the gospel and believing. And notice that Jesus said, so that they may not believe and be saved. That reveals that their unbelief is God's will. Jesus is saying, I, it, it's done this way, so that. Meaning to accomplish a specific purpose that is God's. And the specific purpose that is God's is that they do not believe and they are not saved. And that is worked by Satan. And Satan is God's instrument to reveal God's sovereign will, just as he does with Job, just as God uses Satan with Job, just as God uses the evil spirits with Micaiah uh, in 2 Chronicles 18, I want to say. Um, and then we also see this example in 1 Chronicles 21.1 and 2 Samuel 24.1. Those two texts are the exact same story, the exact same situation 1 Chronicles 21, 1, 2 Samuel 24, 1. In both of those texts, we see David. And in both of those texts, David is, quote, incited to number the people, which is sin. In that particular case, that's sin. He shouldn't do that. And what one text says is that Satan incited David to number the people. And what the other text says about the same story is God incited David to number the people. So what does that mean? It means we have one text telling us God causes David to, to sin, and we have another text saying Satan causes David to sin, meaning Satan is God's instrument that God sovereignly orchestrated to ensure that David would sin to accomplish a purpose that ultimately leads to Christ. So if you're thinking, why would God cause someone to sin? Well, God ordains the sin of Israel over and over again to reveal to them the significance and power of the law to reveal their sin so that they would have a need for Christ. All of this serves God's long-term purpose of showing the necessity of Jesus Christ. And so we see God use instruments of evil or agents that are actors of evil that God causes or ordains to commit evils where God himself is not causing an evil, but the evil agent, in this case, Satan, is. And it fulfills God's sovereign will to ensure that some people don't believe. So the first seed is an unbeliever who hears the gospel and rejects the gospel. And we all know many of these people in our lives as they are the most common type of unbeliever. And remember what Ephesians 6 says. We wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of darkness. Satan is the enemy, not unbelievers. They are lost. They need Christ. We should love them, not turn against them. It's not us versus them. It's us for them. And we let God work it out. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Apollos Planted, I watered, but it's God who gives the increase. We can share the gospel. We should, we, need, we should love them, have compassion for them, share the gospel with them, but it's only God who determines what happens with the word. And so we trust him with that. 
So I just don't want you guys getting any kind of hint or scent or feeling of like, yeah, we're the good people and they're the bad people. No, they were the bad people. They are bad people and so are we. We're just as bad as they are. The only difference is God's grace according to his sovereign will. That's it. And because his sovereign will has caused us to be born again and regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit and believe in Christ, with that knowledge and awareness of the truth of God, we can now see that they're lost and we can love them with the compassion of Christ to seek and save the lost just like Jesus came to do. Amen. And so we have to, you know, even though we're, we're kind of casting, Jesus is casting these apostates and unbelievers in a negative sense, he's not, I mean, Jesus reveals over and over his compassion for lost people and we too should have that. So, the next seed, the second seed, is the apostate. And he explains in verse 13, Jesus says, And the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, received it with joy. Now that sounds like a believer, doesn't it? They received it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. Now, the word believe here, it says, right, they believe for a while. And that might make you think that person's saved. They believe. You can't, if you believe in the gospel, you believe in the gospel. Once you're saved, you're always saved. So they must be believers. But it says they fall away. So it's important to understand this word believe. It is the, the Greek word, which is a, a form of the word um, that is most commonly used, in, uh, which is pistos, which means faith in Greek, is most often used in reference to f- genuine faith, genuine saving belief and faith. But it also can refer to a generic religious belief, just a mental awareness and knowledge of religiosity, right? The same Greek word for believe here is the same Greek word that oftentimes me- really refers to genuine belief, and it's also the same Greek word that is used in James 2.19 that says, even the demons believe. Are demons saved? course not but they believe it's the same greek word used here of these people who quote unquote believe for a while but in time of testing fall away so this is not a reference to salvation this is a reference to these people are just maybe just as aware as a demon probably less aware than demons satan demons they know god's real they know jesus is real they've met him they fought him and they fought him hard because they know he's the son of god in fact they even confess him as the Son of God in the Gospels. And they fight against him, and, they, and Satan himself has been somewhat in the presence of God to confront God, to ask him to pursue Job and in other situations. There's no question that the demons understand and believe God even more confidently than we do because they've seen him. And they would admit, the demons would admit, Jesus is God, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of people. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus is Lord of all creation. Jesus will conquer all things. Jesus will bring home his saints for eternal life. And Jesus will destroy all of his enemies. And he will return and there will be an eternal life in the presence of an infinitely great God. A, a demon would believes all of those things. And they would or could confess those things with their mouth, but they are not saved. Which is why confessions are meaningless if the heart has not been regenerated. And that's exactly what the apostate experiences. So this word believe requires context. 
The context of the verse determines its meaning. And since the context of this verse is that they fall away, it reveals that their belief was a mental awareness and knowledge, but without genuine regeneration in their hearts because they fell away. So why do they fall away? Because they have no root. That's what Jesus says. Though they initially receive the truth and accept it in terms of their knowledge, their belief is only temporary because that knowledge did not take root in their heart. There was no true faith in Christ. Their initial reception with joy is what makes the other believers think that they're actually saved. But in time, the truth is revealed when they depart. And as Paul teaches us in 1 Timothy 4.1, their falling away is the work of demons. And just as Satan works to steal away the gospel from those who reject the gospel, the first seed, so also he works in those who think they have received the gospel by deceiving them into believing that they are saved and then pulling them away from the truth. So again, Satan is the instrument of God. For some, Satan steals the gospel before people even think they believe it and they immediately reject the gospel. And in other cases, Satan helps them falsely believe that they believe in the gospel and even greater manipulation and deception because these people are walking around believing they're saved. So just consider the manipulative genius of this play by demons to give people a taste of the truth, to experience all the works of the Holy Spirit and to participate in the activity of the church, to see the gospel acted out and played out and preached and taught and listened and hear those things being done in the church, to see the fruit and evidence of godly people growing in Christ's likeness, to experience all of that, to participate in the church with all of those things and to claim and confess those things themselves, yet to not actually be saved the degree of manipulation by satan has to be great for those people to hang in long enough to believe they are part of that body and that kind of deception is a level of evil manipulation that ensures that people will never be saved as they will never return again to that truth now i say they will never return again to the truth I say that because that's what Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 says. He writes, It is impossible, impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now that sounds like someone who's saved, right? Enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. But that is not a description of something that happens to someone who gets saved. First of all, this concept of enlightened, never once in Scripture, in any other place in Scripture, is that word ever used as a reference to salvation. It's a, ref, it's a, it's a reference to a mental awareness. Like when you put a... a, a, a in like, like, for example, we're over here uh, when we do music on Sunday mornings. Right now you can see how dark it is over the music set. And it's dark when the lights are down. So we turn these little lights on our, uh, on our music stands on to illuminate the words so we can see them. That's what's happening. That's what enlightenment is. It's, it's a light shining on something in a dark place so that you can see what it means. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's believed. It's just visualized. It's just there's an awareness they're enlightened to the truth, but not saved. So there's no salvation language in this verse. Also, they have tasted the heavenly gift. You'd think, well, that's definitely saved. Well, tasting is not the same as consuming. They taste it, and they try it, and they don't keep it, and they don't consume it, and they don't believe it, and they don't adhere to it. 
and they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, that must mean saved because you cannot have the Holy Spirit unless you are saved. That's true. You cannot have the Holy Spirit unless you are saved. The Holy Spirit must enter you and cause a regeneration for your salvation. And if the Spirit enters you and you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, you are saved because he will regenerate your heart. However, these people are sharing in the Holy Spirit, not indwelled with or filled with the Holy Spirit, but sharing. I'll, give you, I'll explain to you like this. If I share the gospel with an unbeliever and I say to this unbeliever, here's the gospel, and I explain it to them, they have just shared in the Holy Spirit. They've shared in the gospel. Do they believe the gospel? No, but I'm sharing the gospel with them and they are sharing in that experience of the gospel. But there's no faith. There's no belief if they reject it. So all of those experiences in Hebrews 6, and there's a lot more to discover in Hebrews 6, let me just tell you. But all these experiences in Hebrews 6 culminate in this idea that these people cannot reach repentance again. There's no more opportunity for them to be saved. Now you think to yourself, well, where's the grace in that? How can this person never be saved? Because these people have believed every aspect of the gospel. They have confessed all realities of the gospel. They have adhered to the gospel. They have claimed belief in the gospel. They have attached themselves to the gospel and to the church. They have been practicing and living out elements of the gospel and the Bible and truths, but there is no genuine faith rooted in their hearts. And because they have had all of the opportunities and all of the experiences that, required, that are required of being saved and they have participated in them without genuine belief for them to then leave that gospel, God is telling us that those people will never return to salvation. They'll never return to repentance. And there's a reason why he says they'll never return to repentance. And that reason is in Hebrews 6, verse 6, when he says, if they then fall away since they are crucifying once again the Son of God. What that means is these people have professed faith in the crucified Son of God. And they have attached themselves to every element of salvation that is required to be saved without genuine saving faith. And then they abandon that truth. They say, I no longer believe that gospel. I no longer adhere to that gospel. I no longer live by it and I'm not saved. And they know they're not saved and they confess that they're not saved and that's how they live their life and they continue in that direction. And what the Bible is teaching us is that person can't come back and get saved. Not because God is like, no, stay away, but because... In order for them to be saved, there would have to be another crucifixion of another son of God. That's what he's saying. They are crucifying once again the son of God. We see a similar language in Hebrews 10 when he says, verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And he goes on to say, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and who's profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. That person adhered to the gospel and abandoned the gospel, revealing they never believed the gospel, and he's saying that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins for that person because they have already, they have already taken the gospel to themselves and said, I believe in the sacrifice and the crucifixion of the Son of God applied to my heart, yet they don't adhere to it, and they reveal that they never believed it. And what the Bible is teaching us is that adherence is now, that opportunity is now gone because they've already taken the gospel and they've already, quote-unquote, received it without believing it, and now they're throwing it away. So now that they've thrown it away, what the Scripture is teaching us is in order for that person to reach repentance, there has to be another sacrifice for sins, and there has to be a fresh 
and new salvation available for them because they already threw that one away. Which is why in Hebrews 6 he says they are crucifying the Son of God again. Because in order for them to genuinely be saved, essentially, we'd have to go back in time and restart and Jesus would have to die again and that gospel would have to happen again and the crucifixion would have to happen again. It'd have to be new and fresh and all over again and that person would have a brand new, fresh, real opportunity to believe the gospel. That's what would be required for them to be restored again. And that, according to Hebrews 6, 4, is impossible. That's a hard thing to teach. That's a hard thing to say. That's a hard thing to believe. But that just shows you the significance and importance of the church continuing in their sanctification so to not only weed out apostates, but to ensure our convictions and faith in Christ. Like, this just teaches us that this is no joke. The Hebrews 10 text I just read for you, when he's talking about... Those who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's an apostate. And the end of that text ends in verse 31 when he says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. This is a terrifying reality. So their fate is sealed, and it is sealed by them having experienced all the elements of gospel truth, adhering to them, and then abandoning them for good. Now, That's an apostate. That's the second seed. The third seed is also an apostate. However, this apostate plays out much differently than the apostate that we just looked at. Jesus goes on in verse 14. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, They are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. This apostate reveals their lack of genuine faith by falling for the things of the world. We saw this when I just read Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. And what does Paul say is the reason that these people become enemies of the cross? It is because they go after, as Paul says, earthly things. They are choked. The truth is choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. This apostate is different from the last apostate that, quote, fell away. The difference is that this apostate doesn't look like they fell away. This apostate is still in the church. So we wouldn't call him an apostate because we wouldn't recognize him as one until it's revealed. But Jesus tells us that they are. The other apostate abandons Christ and the church knows it and their lack of roots is revealed. But this apostate is enthralled with the cares of the world, yet they have not biblically revealed their lack of faith because they have not explicitly revealed their lack of faith because they are showing some evidence of fruit, but their fruit does not mature because their fruit isn't spirit produced. It is human manufactured. It's fake fruit. Okay, like a bowl of fake fruit sitting on the kitchen table. It looks real. It looks delicious until you pick it up and you realize as you examine the fruit, like this isn't real. This is fake. It looks real and it'll deceive you for a time until you interact with it. And this is what the apostate or the one that falls on the thorns is like. 
meaning they are attempting to convey that they are continuing as a believer, but their heart is not rooted in Christ, as Colossians 2, 7 says, ours are. And they do not follow the sacrificial life of suffering that is required of the follower of Jesus, nor do they hate sin, and nor do they repent when confronted by their sin. They are apostates. And if they do repent, and if they do hate sin, it is a shallow charade. They think they are saved, but they are not. Rather, they are tied to the world and its pleasure while still attempting to be tied to the church. They're sitting on the fence. They're playing both, they're playing both teams. And this is why James 4.4 says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Friendship with the world is hatred towards God. You can't have the pleasures and cares and riches of life and Christ. The whole purpose of believing in Christ is what Jesus says. Pick up your cross and follow me. Not pick up your brand new television and all the pleasures of the world and all the things in this earth and have the best, most fruitful, wonderful life a worldly fulfilled life that you can possibly have have all the pleasures of the world take John 10 10 out of context God Jesus came to give us abundant life and and that abundant me abundance means I get to have all the riches of the world I should have money and I should have security and I should have wealth and I should have prosperity and I should be healthy and God doesn't want me to have any hard things that's not what scripture teaches but that's the way these people believe and that's the way they live. So they secure for themselves through the worldly things, treasures and security and pleasures and health. And their focus is on earthly things. Instead of dying to self to follow Christ, to follow Christ by picking up your cross daily. Amen. They do not practice godly disciplines. But if they do, it's only temporary. And it does not continue through their life. They don't serve, they don't give, they don't pray, they don't read, and they excuse the gathering together of the church. They do all the outward things to convince us that they are saved, but the hidden and private practices of godly devotion are mostly absent. And it will eventually show as they do not produce maturity in their fruit. So they put on a good show. They act like believers. They mentally and verbally acknowledge the gospel truth. And they believe that it's real. But those truths have not taken root in their hearts and their lack of faith has not yet been clearly manifested in their departure from the church. So they continue in the church, but without maturity, without sanctification, without growth. And eventually, as the true believers of Christ continue in the faith and pursue Christ, they will grow into Christ's likeness. They will produce maturity in their fruit. They will become more and more like Christ. They will despise sin and wickedness and evil. And they will hate the enemy. They will love people with compassion. They will grow in an affection and devotion for Jesus Christ. They will do the things that the scriptures tell us to do. They will become more and more obedient. And when they are not obedient, they will hate their sin and fall on their face in repentance with a contrite and broken heart and say, God, restore me and return me to the salvation that I have in Christ Jesus. Fix me, God. I am nothing. I am weak without you. And that is the life of a genuine believer and the apostates can not do it cannot repent. 
And the gap between the genuine believers who continue that way in the faith and pursue Christ and grow, the gap between them and the false converts who love the world will be revealed because the gap will be too wide for any of them to ignore. And since they are unlike the other apostates who have clarified that they do not believe, the other apostates, they're like, I'm out of here, I don't believe in Jesus. These apostates still consider themselves Christians. And so to justify the gap between them and the rest of the fruitful believers, they leave that local body and find another church that will accept them as they are. Or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.3, they will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So that's what they do. They leave the church, they blame the church, and they go to another church till they find a church that itches their ears and suits their passions. And in that new church, in that new place, they will continue in their unbelief, not knowing that they have actually abandoned Christ and that they are deceived by Satan in thinking and justifying that those genuine believers whom they left, they're the problem, not they themselves. And their new church will either lack in discipleship and let them exist forever as unbeliever, not knowing that they are deceived because that church itches their ears, telling them that they're secure in their salvation by their confession alone. If you say you're a Christian, you're a Christian. I'm not going to question you. But I sin a lot. Well, but God's grace. And there's no pursuit of discipleship and growth and maturity into Christ. And the church lets those people wallow in their uh, nominal Christianity. And little do they know that there are many false converts and apostates among them. Or their new church, like their former church, will also be growing around them. And they'll have to leave that church as well. And they'll hop from church to church whatever is next, until they find the one that gives them what they want and it's this vicious cycle of sin that will end in their physical death and unbelief or their eventual admittance that they are not Christians. And they'll justify it by blaming it on how other Christians and other churches have treated them. These are the most dangerous kinds of apostates and yet they are by far the most common. And this, that is why we teach and pursue the concept of continued faithfulness and obedience and growth through the word and prayer and fellowship and the godly disciplines that go along with it. Because we want to become secure and sure and confident that we are in Christ. And that comes through the continued faithfulness, whereas the apostates do not. And to affirm for ourselves that we are not these apostates, Scripture gives us several, several texts that encourage us to continue, to fight the good fight, to finish the race, to maintain the faith, to hold fast to the original confidence, to believe and to continue in faithfulness. And to obey and obey and obey. And all those commands are 
indicative of the true believer who will obey them and will continue and that person will have great confidence growth in them that they are truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are saved and they will know as first John tells us and reminds us this is written this is we, we tell you these things so that you would know that you're saved and this concept of these kinds of apostates is why is why we are taught to continue in faith. And it's also what Jesus is revealing is these are the people, this third seed, these false converts who still think that they're Christians and are living amongst the church, these apostates and false converts are the very people that Jesus says will stand before him one day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not confess you did we not cast out demons in your name did we not perform miracles for you did we're your children he's gonna go i don't know you those people look like they know him but he says i don't know you your works look like you know me but your heart is far from me jesus says that to the to the pharisees because it reveals that there's an outward religiosity but there is not an inward regeneration of the heart by the power of the holy spirit there is no genuine faith, and Jesus will cast them out. And he says, therefore, depart from me, you doer of iniquity. And finally, the last seed, whom is the only genuine believer of the seeds. And Jesus goes on in verse 15 to tell us, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. These are believers, true believers, honest, genuine, heartfelt, regenerated by the power of God, believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Their life is secure. Their eternal life is secured by the Holy Spirit who seals them with the promise. That's what Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 say, and John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. And all, and John 10, verses 28 through 30, all that teaches us that these people are secured and safe in Christ. And Jude 1, verse, I want to say 4, and verse 24 says that he is able to keep us secure. So these are genuine believers who have a hope of eternal life. And what Hebrews 11, 1 says is that Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, meaning faith is the confidence, the genuine belief, the I know this is for sure that my hope is in Christ. Faith is the assurance. Because of faith, I know my eternity is secure, meaning the only people who know for certain that their hope is secure in Christ are those whose faith is genuine. And notice that just like the ones who are not believers... Their condition, the condition of their faith is revealed in time. With all of these seeds, the condition of their faith is revealed in time. Jesus says that our fruit is born out of, he says here, bear fruit with patience. So our fruit, that is genuine fruit, is born out of patience, and patience requires time. So over time, the true believer will produce the true fruit of genuine salvation by the working power of the Holy Spirit within them. Jesus also says that the real believer he says here, holds fast. He says, hold it fast. They hold fast to the gospel, which is why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 3, verse 14, for we share in Christ if, so it's a conditional statement, 
The condition is, if you do this, you share in Christ. You share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So again, you have there this Hebrews 3.14 and what Jesus is saying in Luke 8.15 are the same thing, the same truth. Your salvation in Christ is secure if you are holding fast, is what Jesus says, firm to the end. It is through various trials and tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. That's what Paul says in Acts uh, 14.22. It is through times of testing that we endure, and in those times of testing we hold tight to the truth of the gospel without letting it go. Validating our salvation is genuine and true, and that doesn't happen because we're strong to hold it tight. It happens because Christ keeps us and His Spirit secures us by His power and His strength in our weakness by enacting obedience through us to provide us with our confidence that our obedience reveals the true fruit-bearing faith in our hearts. Obedience is the way in which we become confident in our salvation. We see this in 1 John 3, 18 through 19. It tells us, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So deed there is action. Act out what you believe. If you believe this truth, live it. Don't just say it, live it. Don't just talk a good game, play the game. That's obedience to the things you confess. And the result of that obedience is what John tells us in verse 19. He says, by this, so what's this? This are the deeds he just referenced. And those deeds are obedience. So by this obedience, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So it is obedience that provides reassurance. It is continually growing and walking in the faith and dying to self and sacrificing and suffering and going through all. Now there's plenty of wonderful blessings in there too. There are glorious, great, non-difficult, non-hard, suffering type of blessings that come along with that too. But those are easy and everyone can do them and you don't have to be a Christian to do those things. But you do have to be a genuine believer to endure through the trials and tribulations that require your faithfulness. And being obedient through those trials, which will require sacrifice on your behalf, will produce suffering. And in that suffering, the apostles in Acts chapter 5 rejoice in the suffering. Which is why James says, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Because the trial is the testing of your faith. And the testing of your faith reveals the genuine nature of your faith. And on the other side of the testing, as you become obedient through it, and you get through that obedience, you get through that trial, you get through that tribulation, and on the other side is genuine faith, and you were obedient, what you get is assurance and confidence. I really am saved because I couldn't have done that without the Holy Spirit. And God gets the glory for his work in you instead of you getting the glory for being the person who made it through it. And then John goes on in chapter 3, 1 John 3, 21, to tell us that this also provides us with confidence that we are God's children. So assurance and confidence in our salvation is revealed through our continued obedience of the sanctifying work of the Spirit to grow us out of immaturity, and as Paul says in Ephesians 4.13, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's where we're going. Your aim in life as a Christian is not the same aim as the apostate. Our aim and our goal and our desire is to become like Christ. 
And if you're going to become like Christ, you have to act like Christ, you have to follow Christ, you have to look at Christ, you have to watch Christ, you have to read Christ, you have to listen to Christ, you have to follow Christ. Why are my kids like me? Why do my kids talk like me? Why do they look like me? Why do they sound like me? Why do they say things that I say? Why do they repeat the things I repeat? Why are my kids just like me? Because they look at me, they're from me, they follow me, they listen to me, I talk to them, they obey me. They're like me because they follow me and copy me. They, and, and they're looking at me as they follow me. And as they look at me and follow me, they end up doing the things that I do. That's why Paul says, follow my example. Because Christ is the example and he's the one we follow to be like him. And if we do that, if we want to become like him, we have to look upon him. We have to stare at him and think about him and talk about him. And and this is what Philippians chapter 4 says. In Philippians 4, Paul's writing to the church and he's encouraging them that if you want to fight anxiety in life, your anxiety comes from the fact that you are not focused on Christ. Period. Period. All of anxiety in all of the world, from the most severe case of clinical anxiety to the least severe case of anxiety, all of it is a product of a lack of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that that anxiety isn't genuine and isn't, doesn't need to be dealt with. I'm not crushing people of anxiety. And I'm not saying, oh, you don't have anxiety because you're not a good Christian. That's not at all what I'm saying. But the answer is that anxiety is sin, and all sin comes from a lack of faith. That's Romans 14, 23. Anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. So all sins are a somehow a lack of faith. So anxiety as a sin is a lack of Christ somehow. And the solution that Paul gives us is to pray, in prayer and supplication, to give these, and in thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And then he goes on and he gives us this. This is how you defeat anxiety. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What is anxiety? It is thinking about the wrong things. You overwhelmingly think about things that aren't healthy to think about, and you think in unhealthy ways, and you've got unhealthy thinking habits, and the product is anxiety, and Paul says the solution is think differently. You're not going to fix it overnight, I know. But that's how you change anxiety. You think differently. You think about what is lovely, commendable, excellent, just, honorable, pure, and true. So let me ask you, what is true? Jesus. What is honorable? Jesus. What is just? Jesus. What is pure? Jesus. What is lovely? Jesus. What is commendable? Jesus. What is excellent? Jesus. What is, is there anything worthy of praise? Jesus. Think about these things. Think about Jesus. That is how you become like Jesus. Our problem with obedience is that we are trying to be obedient. We're like, I gotta be good today. And when I'm not good, I'm such a terrible person that we fall apart. We can't handle it because you're not good. Have you read Romans 3, 10 through 18? I'll read it for you. I'm a little off topic. Not off topic, just off track. Okay, anyways. 
If you're thinking for a second that you're good enough to be good for God and to do anything that's good, just read this for a second. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. How many people are righteous? None. How many people understand? None. How many people seek God? None. How many people turn aside? All. How many are worthless? All. Who does good? None. How many? Not even one. Those are all words from Romans 3, 10 through 18. So sorry, but you just aren't good enough to be good. And any obedience you do is the work and the power of the Holy Spirit acting in you. That's Ezekiel 36, 27. He says, I will put, not ask, but put my spirit in you and cause, not request, not ask, not push, not encourage, cause you to obey my rules. Amen. It is the Spirit who produces your righteousness. So the goal is not be good and obey God. That's the wrong command for you. The command is pursue Jesus. Love Jesus. Think about Jesus. Consider Jesus. Read about Jesus. Pray to Jesus. Be alone with Jesus, give to Jesus, serve Jesus, love Jesus, think about Jesus, talk about Jesus, sing songs to Jesus, praise Jesus. Everything in your life should be about Jesus, and if it's not, it's a waste of your time. Everything should be about Christ. And as you pursue Christ, he fills you with this spirit, and guess what the spirit does? Obedience. And then you turn around and you're like, did I just do that right? <laughs> and you didn't even know it was you. Because you're so focused on Christ, the Spirit is producing fruit out of you. So no, I don't want to create some sort of legalistic demand where you guys need to start obeying God. That's not the command. The command is pursue Jesus. He is everything. And when we do, he will produce the fruit of righteousness through you and thus confirm for you with confidence and reassurance that you are a child of God. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we just ask that you would, for our sake, sanctify us by the power of your spirit and remove from us any pursuit of things in life that do not bring you glory or honor. We know that's going to be a lifelong journey, God, of battling those things that fight for our attention in our hearts. And we will fail and we will fall and we will go for sin and we will fall for the pleasures of the world at times. But we ask that you would create in us a heart of repentance, a heart of humble humble repentance that recognizes our sin and chases it away and runs to Christ. Give us hearts and minds that genuinely, joyfully want to pursue you, love you, and know you. May you be the everything for us. And, and, and keep us from the legalistic mandate that we have to start obeying you and start creating in us just a, 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 a total in complete passion, desire, and drive to see and know and be in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in every moment of life. And in doing so, you will pour your love into us as we commune with you, and your love is your spirit, and your spirit in being poured into us will produce out of us your fruit of your righteousness. And we, as recipients of your good grace, will get your glory one day. So unfair. <laughs> we deserve death. 
and yet you give us this life. What a beautiful gospel. What a gracious and glorious God you are. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.